We served our country like those before us. You know, it was a dangerous era. All of Vietnam was dangerous. The carnage of war left an indelible mark on me. We came back and built lives. As time went on, we faced new challenges and found support to handle them. I went to the VA, talked to my doctor. I started doing groups. I started doing one-on-one -on -one counseling. At maketheconnection.net, you can hear our stories and find tools and services available to you. I'm Timothy Lawson, your host for This Week at VA. Today makes the podcast seven episodes strong, and I'm humbled by the positive responses we've received regarding the program. If this is your first time listening, I suggest you look us up in iTunes by searching This Week at VA, subscribe to the podcast, and leave us a rating and review. At the close of last week, I mentioned we'd have a Marine Yogi on today's show. I've done some rescheduling, and today we'll actually feature Army veteran Kayla Williams, who currently serves as VA's director for the Center for Women Veterans. We'll remind you how to connect with Kayla's work and also spotlight our veteran of the day. Before we get to Kayla's interview, let me tell you about Make the Connection. MakeTheConnection.net is an online resource designed to connect veterans, their family members, and friends, and other supporters with information, resources, and solutions to issues affecting their lives. Their website is full of materials and information to include powerful videos allowing veterans to open up about their most challenging experiences. Make the Connection has resources for dozens of symptoms and conditions such as alcohol problems, drug abuse, gambling, depression, PTSD, suicide, feeling on the edge, guilt, and much more. Personally, as someone that has battled problems with alcohol, depression, and suicide, I find that simply watching the videos they have available to be very empathetic. Visit maketheconnection.net to see what information they have for you or your loved ones. The feature interview today is with Kayla Williams. Kayla Williams served as a linguist in the Army and as a military spouse at home. Nearly half of active duty women are in dual military marriages, leaving them to serve their country and their family in both capacities. Kayla now serves as VA's director of the Center for Women Veterans. She is going to share with us her experience during the 9-11 attacks, deploying as a female soldier, challenges as a woman veteran, and her goals in her current position at VA. Enjoy. Okay, Kayla Williams, the director for the Center for Women's Veterans here at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, you and I met a few years ago virtually when you were on uh, one of my podcasts in the past. We've shared a stage at AU for the panel uh, preceding the Fort Bliss screening that AU did. Um, I was the only male on an all-women's panel, which was a very unique experience uh, for me. The um, opposite of my typical experience, yeah. where being the only woman on an otherwise all-male panel is uh, par for the course in the veterans community. Yeah, and I think you know that was the unique experience is I had never been in that situation. Right. It was always what you were experiencing, where I was you one of three You got to walk in my heels. Yeah. <laughs> And now you got, I was very excited when I heard that you got the appointment um, here, not only because I was excited to know someone else at VA, but I knew that you were going to do amazing at the job. And um, up in my office, up in OPIA, your name comes up often on media requests and how you're doing all of them uh, whenever, uh, whenever there's an opportunity. 
we'll, we'll get to your position and your role here in a little bit. We want to start the story where we start all veteran stories, and that's the decision to join the United States military. Uh, everybody has that, in, all veterans have that in common, but every experience is unique. What was yours? So I joined the Army in 2000, and like many people, it was not for just one reason. It was a combination of factors that drove me to serve. I already had an undergraduate degree, and I wanted to go into graduate school, but wasn't sure at all how I would pay for continuing my education. I also felt like I'd never deeply challenged myself. My undergrad degree is in English literature, so they gave me a college degree for reading books, which is my hobby, so I felt like I'd kind of cheated. Uh, and I also felt like I was just doing what was expected of me and not anything that I deeply wanted to do. I was just kind of following society's expectations for how my life was supposed to progress and I was digging a little rut that I was afraid I would never be able to escape if I didn't do something really drastically different. And I also felt a deep obligation to serve our country. My mother was a single mom and we had some very difficult financial times when I was a kid and had been on food stamps off and on. So I knew that society had invested in me and I wanted to repay uh, that debt that I felt to the country. So all those things kind of coalesced and I decided to serve in the military. I chose to become a linguist because I thought it was really cool that the Army would pay me to learn a foreign language instead of me having to pay somebody else to teach me one. And it was just random chance that I was assigned Arabic as opposed to any other language. So I was actually at the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California learning Arabic on 9-11 when it was apparent that my career was going to be a little different than it might have been otherwise. Yeah. that's. That's amazing. We, uh, we've had a few stories now of um, veterans that were in the, in the military pre-9-11 and mm -hmm. experienced it. Um, so let's, let's get that story from you. Tell us the difference that you felt between September 10, 2001 and September 12, 2001. So first was just the, the absolute certainty that we were going to go to war. And as a class full of people learning Arabic, it was an absolute certainty that we would go to war for our country. And on a more practical level, we were living on, at the time, it was an open post. People in the community could just drive through to get from one side to the other, and suddenly they put they closed the gates, had gate guards up, and uh, had to deal with frustration from local civilians who had been, I don't want to say spoiled, but I think maybe weren't fully conscious of the fact that that our little tiny military, you know, uh, base was in fact a place that needed to be protected from potential threats. And that change in the, the threat posture was very noticeable and it was fascinating to see the local communities not terribly understanding reception to the change. Yeah. I remember the same thing, I mean I was only, um, what I had to been 15, 16 at the time, and I remember the, uh, I grew up on a, uh, in a Navy town of an, in Woodby Island, Washington, mm. and even the, the separate base that only had an exchange, a commissary, and some housing, even that was heavily guarded and gated, and like you said, anybody on the island could just drive through the property at any point and then when that happened that stopped and even now there is still more resistance of uh, being able to get on base than there was pre 9-11 so it's amazing how uh, when you when i think about how 
just life in the community changed and right. how those ex those uh, changes still existed in some way now it's pretty right. amazing yep the best deli in town was on the other side of our base from most of the city and the the uh, the furor that folks would be mildly inconvenienced by having to circle around <laughs> to get to the deli and just thinking about how it, it was just startling almost that they would be so incensed about that minor inconvenience when we were facing having to go to war so you did deploy i did i took part of the initial invasion of iraq in 2003 as part of the 101st airborne division air assault under then general petraeus yeah. who you may have heard of oh, yeah. he went on to have a i'm, a, a I'm fairly, familiar with the name yes yeah. yeah his his career continued after that deployment um, and if you don't mind sharing what was your experience mm -hmm. like on that deployment so I was in the Army during the you go to war with the Army you have era, and also the era when women were technically barred from direct ground combat arms jobs and units by policy. So because of that policy leading to the expectation that women would not be in combat, uh, and the fact that there wasn't enough equipment to go around, I wasn't issued plates for my flak vest. There also were not enough Arabic speakers to go around, and so I went on combat foot patrols with the infantry in Baghdad with no plates. No in kidding. My, in my flak vest the first couple times. Eventually we figured out like, maybe I should borrow at least a front plate from somebody who isn't going out this particular day. That was the most rewarding part of my military career, getting to go out with the infantry and see the combat arms guys doing their jobs and know immediately that I was making a difference. I had been trained to do signals intelligence where you, we did intercept and direction finding on enemy communications, should there be any to intercept. And then you call up reports to hire who may or may not ever tell you if what you're reporting has led to any operational successes. So it often felt really, it was hard to know if you were making a difference in, in the, the mission. But going out and translating between the local populace and the infantrymen, I knew at every moment that I was helping to accomplish the mission, that what I was doing mattered. I could feel it at every, uh, every point of those experiences. And that was really deeply, deeply rewarding, even though it was incredibly hard and sometimes very scary. And I had the worst experience of my deployment when I translated while we provided medical assistance to um, some locals who had been injured when unexploded ordnance went off and one didn't survive. So that was a, an incredibly traumatic and very, very difficult experience, but at the same time still with this knowledge that my presence had mattered, yeah. that I made a difference. And that sense of, of purpose and meaning and knowing that it was, uh, that I was, I was using the training that I had gotten, that was all really, really powerful. You can also laugh that it took until my you know, mid-20s to learn this, but it was also really important for me to, for the first time in my life, truly, genuinely understand how it takes everyone to accomplish any military mission and how important different skill sets are. So speaking Arabic, it's not easy to learn. There's this sense of like, oh, I'm doing something that's, that's hard, and being in Iraq realizing it doesn't matter if I speak Arabic if my truck won't run and I can't get to where I need to be. Yeah. The mechanic matters. It doesn't matter if I speak Arabic if I 
starve because I don't have any food. Yeah. The supply guys matter. And I'm only here to support the infantrymen. So really getting a sense of that ecosystem and how important it is for everybody to do what they've been trained to do, to come together as a team. And the fact that my particular type of intelligence or you know the job I'd been trained to do doesn't matter at all without everybody else being there and, and working together. That was a really important lesson that I've taken with me and I try to teach my own kids now. You know, yeah. I take them with me to the mechanic if I get an oil change. Look, this is a car doctor. He makes our car keep running. He matters. Yeah. Uh, so I really want to convey that lesson to my own kids that uh, there is no job that's shameful. We need everybody to do their jobs. We need. We don't want garbage piling up the streets, so we need garbage men, like, right? We need everybody to, to do uh, different jobs, even if they don't look appealing from the outside. They're all really important. I'm really glad that you say that because I think w one thing that I sort of despise in the veteran community is occupation shaming, you know, sort of the look down of, you know, you didn't oh, go to you combat, you, did, you, you know, you were only this, you were Adam and stuff like that. And yeah, it's, it's fun to rib people mm -hmm. on stuff like that. But, um, you know, I... But if we stopped getting paid while we were there, we would have been really mad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I didn't deploy. Um, I served between 2006 and 2011, spent most of that time uh, on embassy duty. But for, for, for one year, I was a aviation supply specialist, I think. Yeah. And... I ordered airplane parts, you know, and it wasn't a glorious job, um, but... If you didn't do it, airplanes wouldn't fly. Yeah, and I could actually trace my work to what was happening right. overseas. And I, that was, it was such a valuable part of that time that everybody in the military could look at what they're doing, whether it was being made fun of or not, they could still trace a line between them and Afghanistan or Iraq and know that I'm contributing somehow to those efforts. And maybe this is probably this is probably a good time to maybe talk about your transition out. Mm -hmm. This is where veterans struggle a lot coming out is it's difficult to find another job, whether it fulfills a sense of purpose or not, where they can trace that line between what I do and the overall mission. So what when, when did you transition out and what prompted it? Uh, I left active duty in 2005. My five-year enlistment was up and I wanted to um, go on to graduate school. I mean, one of the things that had prompted me to enlist to begin with. But also, I, while I was in Iraq, had met a fellow soldier and was really interested in him, but it was, it was war, we didn't start dating, anything like that. Uh, he was then very, very seriously wounded in Iraq. He sustained a penetrating traumatic brain injury from a roadside bomb and uh, he was not getting the care that he needed. He was hurt in October of 2003. The systems and services to support our wounded warriors just didn't exist back then in the same uh, manner that they do today. And so I got out partly to help him on his road to recovery because I could see that he was slipping through the cracks and without somebody to help him along the way, he might he might not have made it. It was it was very very bad. So uh, I when I chose not to reenlist, partly in order to to help him on his journey to healing, and um, he was at Walter Reed, and I joined him in the Metro DC region to help him on his his path to healing. Okay. During your transition, what was your journey like in that um, search for a new purpose? As a woman, I felt invisible. When people 
would see me and my husband at events where it was clear for any reason that at least one of us was a veteran. The default assumption was that he was a vet. And my own experiences were, were often not considered. Uh, I had to, if I wanted to be recognized, I had to push for it. And even then, my experiences were discounted. The assumption was that I hadn't deployed, or if I had deployed, I hadn't gone outside the wire, or if I had gone outside the wire, I hadn't certainly been in any sort of combat situation. So this, this constant sense that my service was not recognized at all, and when it was, it was devalued, was an added complication to what was already a challenging transition, going from combat to comfort, from soldier to spouse, from uh, you know, sergeant to civilian, like all of these transitions going on at the same time were, were really very complicated. At the beginning when I would go uh, to the commissary and have to show my dependent ID card, this weird kind of ugly salmonish color dependent ID card, the first couple months I told the people checking IDs, like, I used to be in the military, I used to be a soldier, and they look at me like, congratulations, like, we don't care. Yeah. But I felt so awkward about it and this guilt that troops that I had trained uh, were redeploying without me. I felt terrible about that. So it, it was a, a tricky transition. I started uh, working and it was hard to work with civilians after, after being in the military. You can't just order people to do something with the knife hand. Right. You have to um, seek consensus building and, um, and be nice to people. So that, that was difficult. Then I started going to grad school using my GI Bill and, and the kids would fall asleep in class without standing up if they felt themselves dozing off. And I thought that was horrifying. So just all of these little, little incidents that drove home how much I had changed on my deployment in particular, but during my, my service in general, while the country, um, it hadn't. It felt like it had changed, but it wasn't. It was that I had changed, yeah. and that was, uh, it was challenging to, to work through all those transitions. And in some ways, though I've ultimately thrived, I think my military experience has fundamentally shaped who I am today. Most of my friends are prior service. Uh, we have a, you know, a definite, it, it influences many aspects of our lives today. Yeah. Um, and then within those challenges, did you experience any emotional crisis? Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> it was, it was tough. I, when I was first, when I was first home and really trying to figure out, you know, how to cope with the pressures of my own transition and also trying to learn how to be a caregiver to Brian. And I didn't have any training. I didn't know anything about PTSD. I didn't know anything about traumatic brain injury. So I didn't know how to support him well. And the pressure felt extremely intense. Um, I tried using Military One Source to get counseling in the civilian community. And the woman that I saw, again, this is, this is 2004. People didn't know as much as they know now and often didn't think of women as being um, service members or veterans. The woman that I went to see like, did not associate my uh, symptoms with going to war. Like, she, didn't, yeah. she didn't think there was any connection between the fact that I had just gotten back from a war zone uh, to you know, the struggles that I was feeling and that was really disconcerting. Uh, things, got, things got so bad that at one point I, I really did think there was only um, the only way that I could 
get out of the situation I was in was suicide. I, I really genuinely struggled to cope with the pressures that I was under. And I'm very lucky that I ended up having uh, support and being able to, to get through the transition period and uh, down the road found very, very good and evidence-based treatment to help me get, um, get back on track and learn to effectively cope with stress uh, that I was under. But it was, it was definitely rocky. Um, for, for several years, it was difficult to cope with everything that was going on, especially trying to learn how to be a caregiver. And looking for help was, I think, harder because Brian and I were both veterans. So we had both been shaped by this mentality of suck it up and drive on, don't admit weakness. And I, I've often wondered if one of us had been a civilian, we would have sought help sooner. Yeah. And as it was, we both thought it was totally normal to not say something is profoundly wrong and I need I need help to cope with it. Yeah. So. Well, I think, in, you know, in the veteran space, we there's been, over the past few years, I think we've done a really great job of recognizing the military spouse and them as a caregiver right. um, on both sides, even for, um, you know, men that are the spouse of, yep. of a uh, service member. But we still don't hear a lot of stories, um, at least I haven't seen a lot, of where of the dual veteran, um, dual military, because you're both, right? You're, yep. it's, you don't just take one role, you are both. Yes, and that's why Brian and I have been so involved in veterans advocacy, which is one of the things that ultimately led me to my current position. We reached a point where we were able to recognize that it wasn't personal failings or individual weaknesses that were driving some of the challenges we were facing. There were systemic problems, and we got involved in advocacy to try to change the structure to be able to better support veterans and wounded warriors and military families who were all uh, coping with some variation of similar uh, struggles that yeah. we had encountered. And that uh, was a way for us to find new purpose new meaning in uh, in our own experiences, our own lives, since we had no, were no longer able to find that purpose in the military. So we found it in advocacy and being part of the veterans community. And that was really deeply rewarding. Yeah. Um, before we get into your work here at VA, I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into um, the challenge and maybe even the benefits, uh, if they're that, um, in being the being each other's support system while you're both experiencing unique challenge, um, unique right. needs. Um, you know, so maybe if you can use an example of something you can remember of when it was both exceptionally challenging, but also there is like silver lining to both you sharing that experience. Can you tell tell us about something like that? Sure. So one of the benefits is that we understood uh, we understood each other. So. Both of us for a while had a hard time dealing with big crowds and dealing with sudden unexpected noises. So something like going to fireworks, um, big fireworks displays off the table. And we didn't have to explain it to each other. Right. We just understood, we just got it. Or if we would walk into a restaurant and it was completely packed and really loud and we wouldn't be able to see the exits from where we sat, uh, Brian would look at me and say, nope. And I'd say, okay, got it. And we would just leave. Yeah. I, we never had to, we never argued about it. I never said like, I don't understand why you feel this way. I don't get it, why can't you just handle it? I'm like, yep, got it. Yeah. Uh, or if we went to Walmart and I stood staring at the 
the shampoo selection with the hundreds of varieties and I couldn't cope with making a decision and I was like, I just have to get out of here. He's like, okay, got it. And we, so that deep understanding, not of every single experience because I didn't get blown up and he didn't get sexually harassed, but the core understanding of, uh, of some shared and profound experiences uh, really did help us in some ways. Yeah, I wanna, talk, I wanna make sure we talk about your work here at the mm -hmm. Center for Women Veterans. How did you, um, I, know, I know you've, you've written a couple books on, on your experiences in the military. When I found out that you had gotten this job, you had just moved out of the area <laughs> uh, and came back. So uh, provide a little context if you can on, on sort of where, where you were in life when sure. you took this position. So after I got out of the military, I spent a, a couple years working as a contractor doing Arabic translation and going to graduate school, got my master's degree in international relations. And then I spent eight and a half years at the Rand Corporation doing research and analysis on international security and defense issues and gradually moving more and more into doing research on service member and veteran issues, including um, behavioral health concerns and use of benefits by by vets and uh, and other other issues. So I was making a difference in that in that job, but at the same time, I, I sometimes felt like the good idea fairy. So I'm doing research as an outsider and coming in with recommendations and sprinkling our recommendations around, and then fluttering off, not having to live with the consequences. And I really wanted to be able to make a difference from the inside, and had been. Um, hoping that the right opportunity would present itself. Uh, as, you, as you mentioned, Brian and I had just moved up to, the pit, uh, up to Pittsburgh. Rand has an office there, and so I was working up there, and Brian was using his GI Bill benefits to go back to school, and I was asked to serve in this new capacity within VA, and it was an opportunity that we, we both knew immediately I could not pass up getting to serve our country in a new way, uh, tackling some challenges from the inside was just an, an incredible honor. So we moved, moved the family back, moved two small kids twice inside a year. So that was <laughs> its own special challenge, yeah. but, but one that was absolutely worth it to have these, this opportunity. Um, so to, to quote one of my uh, favorite movies, Office Space, what exactly is it that you do here? I fight the fax machine. No, I'm kidding. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's office yeah. space. Um, so my job is to serve as the primary advisor to the secretary on policies, programs, uh, benefits, and care related to women veterans. And uh, the office, which was created by Congress in 1994, has a number of congressionally mandated functions, including monitoring and oversight uh, of um, programs and benefits for women veterans, uh, disseminating research related to women veterans, and um, and supporting the independent VA advisory committee on women veterans. Our mission also includes working towards a cultural transformation both within VA and in the broader community to recognize military women and women veterans and the contributions that we've made. and. Uh, raise awareness of the responsibility to treat them with dignity and respect. Yeah. It's important that this is something that we do not just within VA, but also in the broader community because we do still hear stories of women um, not being recognized 
so locally we have the Harris Teeter grocery stores. They have reserved parking for veterans. Yeah. And you periodically see stories about a woman parking there, a woman veteran parking in veterans parking spaces yeah. and, and coming back to find a nasty note on her windshield saying, how dare you take a parking spot from a veteran? And yeah. so this, this knowledge that we really have some genuine challenges um, with not being recognized. So that's, those are you know, anecdotes about the parking spaces, but there's also survey data that shows that women veterans do feel unrecognized and as if, as if people don't, um, don't acknowledge that, that they serve the value of their service. So we really do need to work on changing that in the broader community and here within VA. Yeah. Uh, we've made tremendous strides uh, even before I came on board in changing the culture within the department. Uh, but despite the huge amount of progress that's already been made, uh, you know, I use VA care exclusively. And there have been times when I walk in and they, uh, you know, when I check in, they assume that, um, that I'm checking in my male spouse veteran husband, right, as opposed to being there for my own appointment. There's this, I've been asked when I pull into park if I need to be directed towards employee parking. And those, those little tiny things that for me, uh, at this stage in my life when I'm doing reasonably well, uh, I can ignore those small, uh, small symbolic gestures that devalue a woman veteran's experience. If there's a woman who's profoundly struggling, uh, they may deter her from coming to VA or coming back. And so we know we have to fix those issues within VA. And I'm very excited to also work with strategic partners on the outside to make sure that we can tackle those in the broader community. So it has to be a both and, not an either or. Sure. And I know the last time we talked, you mentioned that women veterans are a lot less likely to identify um, as veterans. Um, what are the challenges there? So especially prior era women veterans were less likely to self-identify as vets. Uh, we, we hear as well, there's some, some folks who really strongly associate the term veteran with combat veterans, yeah. and women are, statistically speaking, more likely to have served in peacetime, so that, that may have contributed to it as well. Uh, and as you noted, you know, for me to be in a dual veteran relationship, I wonder if that can also be a contributing factor. If a, if folks are in a dual military marriage and the woman gets out and her husband stays in, I personally know several women who in that situation begin to identify more as a military spouse than as a veteran themselves. Uh, and I think that can also complicate it. So for a number of reasons, um, it's important when you're asking folks about their veteran status that you ask, have you served in the military? As opposed to, are you a veteran? If you just ask, make that simple change, have you ever been in the military, more women will say yes than if you ask, are you a veteran? Yeah, okay. Um, looking at um, the, the, um, the women veteran community and all of the issues that we know exist in the veteran space in general, um, what are some unique challenges that are existing among women veterans um, that VA is, is trying to hone in on right now? One of the challenges that I have seen more broadly that I think can be exacerbated for women is a focus on the challenges we face and not the ways in which we are assets to our communities. So women vets, 
uh, compared to men veterans and compared to civilian women were actually more highly educated and were more likely to work in management and professional occupations. And compared to civilian women, we have significantly higher household incomes. So in some ways we are, as a, as a group, doing reasonably well and communicating that to potential employers. Hey, we're assets. We come back with, uh, with uh, strong educations and these terrific leadership skills and we will be um, we, we would be great hires. That is something that we have to work with. And then nesting that in the larger context that overall, yes, we have, uh, we have very strong financial showings compared to other groups, but at the same exact time, existing concurrently with that, women veterans are two to four times more likely to be homeless than women who have never served. Uh, we're about 9% of the homeless veteran population, so and we're 9.6% of the total veteran population. So within the veteran community, we aren't necessarily at disproportionate risk, but compared to civilian women, there is disproportionate risk. And the, the suicide rate for women veterans has climbed compared to that of civilian women um, quite dramatically. Uh, it, please do note that when it comes to women veterans who use VHA, that increase has not happened. So it's really important to me to communicate to women that they should come to VA because they will get high quality evidence-based care here at VA. Uh, the same is true for even gender specific care. So women vets are more likely to get cervical cancer screenings and breast cancer screenings on time if they use VA than if they use private insurance or Medicare. So come to VA, we, we have high quality evidence-based care, uh, but we have to communicate that a little better. We're only about 7.6% of the population of patients in VHA. So we're underutilizing VHA, our VHA care, even though we're using our, our benefits, VBA benefits, education and, and comp and pen and, and VA-backed home loans at strong rates. So uh, it's a challenge to communicate out there, hey, VA provides good care, come into VA, we're working on the culture change, tell me if it's not working somewhere so we can uh, you know, continue to make progress on it, we're working on employee education, we're, we're working on ma making sure that images are inclusive and language is inclusive, um, but getting that message out there that the care is good and women should come in and take advantage of it if they are facing any of these real challenges, that's something that we're continuing to work on. Sure. As I mentioned at the top of the interview, uh, you have a reputation in uh, my office, Office of Public Affairs, for um, being open and willing to do just about any media request that comes your way. That makes it sound bad. <laughs> no, I mean, and it's. I think it's it's refreshing. Um, uh -huh. You know, when I say you have a reputation, is when we do our staff meetings, um, it seems like every other week someone's like, well, we've got a request for Kayla Williams and she's going to do it. And like, there's never any question, there's never any. What, what, what motivates you so much to be so dedicated to pushing the, the message out there? I really believe in transparency. So I'm willing to say, hey, here's how we have not always gotten it right. Because I know that if I were to pretend it's all been sunshine and roses, uh, that it would not help. People know that there have been issues. There have been GAO reports and, you know, I've personally experienced things. So I'm willing to go out there and say, here's, we know where, where we have not gotten things right. Uh, here's what we're doing to try to improve things because I believe really passionately in 
the the benefit of VA. I mean, VA has been crucial to my own transition and success. I used my VA education benefits. I've used VA-backed home loans. I use VA healthcare, and uh, I I know that I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for VA. And I want other veterans and other women veterans in particular to uh, have access to the same high quality care and timely benefits that I've gotten. Uh, so I, I really want to communicate that message. We're in the middle of this cultural transformation. We're making a ton of progress. If you had a bad experience, come back in and, uh, and work with us on continuing to improve. But don't, don't give up and walk away um, because I, I just really passionately believe that VA is is a a good system for veterans, and I want to I want to reach them and and encourage them to come in and be recognized. Uh, I also it was funny I was, I was talking to a woman who was saying, okay, yeah, hearing you talk, I think I will give VA another shot. You know, when I went in, you know, ten years ago, the doc seemed like he didn't fully believe that I'd been to war. Uh, so and it really put me off, and so I, I didn't come back. But maybe after hearing you talk, maybe I'll give it another chance. I said, "So the civilian doctor you've been seeing, has he or she ever even asked if you've been in the military at all?" And the vet said, uh, "No." And I said, "Okay, so that doctor doesn't even know to ask you if you were exposed to burn pits. Yeah. That doctor has no idea what other unique exposures you may have had in the military." because that doc doesn't know you're in the military at all. So please do come back to VA. Um, we may occasionally, you know, every now and then when I check in and say, okay, my last name is Williams and here's my last four, they look at the, at the name and they say, oh, Richard, and I have to say, nope, nope, I'm <laughs> Kayla. Uh, so yes, I have to deal with those, those irritations and, and that is frustrating. Um, but remember that you're also getting evidence-based care and the more of us come in, the more we will be recognized as part of the veteran community and, and patient population. We are uh, expected to make up 15% of the population of veterans by 2035 or 2040. So about the same, you know, to, it'll match our representation in the, in the service um, by 2040. So we're the fast, one of the fastest growing populations of veterans. And, uh, we should be getting the care that we have earned through our service. Yeah, along with the message of give VA another chance, um, since, you've, since you've gotten in here, what are some of the accomplishments or, and what are some of the campaigns that you're really pushing forward uh, right now? One of the first things I did was to do a big revamp of our website so that it includes um, a, a news page where I have uh, every business day we, uh, we share any news that's related to women vets or military women, uh, push out medical and other types of research related to women veterans on our research page, have a revamped resources and opportunities page where if folks are uh, looking for information on employment or uh, caregiving resources, any number of um, IVF updates, what's going on with that, we have all of that available. And also when you go, you can sign up to get email updates on, um, uh, on a regular basis in any of those topic areas and trying to take more advantage of digital outreach um, opportunities to reach our population, including those who may be more rural or have mobility challenges and aren't able to always get out in person. So reaching them that way. 
I also partnered with VBA on a partnership they had with Women Veterans Interactive to do a, uh, a campaign called the State of Women Veterans, where for uh, 11 weeks I wrote a blog a week digging into how women veterans were doing in a given topic area and what VA is doing to support them. And uh, really think it's important to help you know, correct some misconceptions that exist out there about how women vets are doing and also raise awareness among women veterans about what resources are available to them as they, as they um, move into civilian life and, and continue along uh, their life journey. Uh, and I'm very, very excited to announce that Equitable Experience for Women Veterans is one of the fiscal year 17 My VA Transformation initiatives. So that is going to allow us to make significant progress on identifying and uh, reducing and eliminating ultimately any disparities between men and women veterans on um, access to health care and provision of, of benefits. So really excited to be able to lead that effort and uh, I'm, I'm excited to be able to share what progress we're making over the next couple of years. Amazing. If there's, uh, Kayla, if there's any women veterans uh, or friends, family of women veterans in the, in the audience that are listening to this and want to uh, connect with, your, with the center, um, what's the best way they can do that? Um, check out our website, which is va.gov slash womenvet, and uh, you can see all the information that I was talking about, and also there's information there on how to connect with us. One thing that I also want to mention, because I feel as if, unfortunately, it, folks at VA don't always make this effort, I want to make sure that women vets know that they may be eligible for NCA benefits, so the National Cemetery Administration. Women underutilize that benefit. And so I really want women veterans to know that they may be eligible for burial and memorial benefits at uh, national cemeteries and, and state cemeteries because of their military service. And uh, that is that benefit is also available for one's spouse and minor dependents. So if somebody has a, a really uh, tragic loss, uh, NCA is available there to support them uh, and it's just um, I think so important that we remember that we have earned these benefits that they're there for us and can support us and our families in really difficult times so uh, hopefully you know I, th I think it's, it's something that younger vets especially don't want to think about the fact that we will eventually need burial and memorial benefits but yeah. Uh, but NCA is there for us and for our families, too. Absolutely. Kayla, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I know that uh, you're going to be around VA for a while, hopefully. So uh, I'm, I'm confident this won't be the last time that uh, you and I chat. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about my, my personal history and how it's given me the passion to work here within VA on behalf of women veterans. And I'm very excited about being able to continue sharing our progress with you over the, the years to come. Absolutely. Thank you for your insight. Thank you for your service. And thank you for your continued service uh, through the Center of Women and Veterans. Thank you so much. And I hope you have very happy holidays. I served in Vietnam. I served in World War II. I served in Afghanistan. And VA serves us all. No matter when you served. No matter if you saw combat or not. There are benefits for veterans of every generation. See what VA can do for you. 
To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. As Kayla mentioned, there are a lot of great things happening through the Center for Women Veterans. Stay connected with their amazing work and discover the resources they provide by visiting va.gov slash womenvet. Today's Veteran of the Day is Air Force veteran Timothy Montjoy. Timothy joined the Air Force in 1996 and served in client systems. He saw time in Turkey, Qatar, Korea, and in support of OIF and OEF. Timothy just retired on November 30th after 20 years of loyal service. Congratulations, Timothy, and thank you for your service. Read Timothy's full write-up and other Veteran of the Day posts at blogs.va.gov. That's it for Episode 7. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of options out there for entertainment, so I appreciate you spending your time here with me. If you have any feedback or questions that you'd like to have answered on the show, please tweet them to us using hashtag VAPodcast or emailing us at newmedia at va.gov. Be sure to visit flickr.com slash photos slash veterans affairs for more pictures from our community. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off.